companies worked alongside each other to control the labour market and keep the pay rates lower. Both companies created a system of loyalty and made the workers fear unemployment. This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Today's object allows us to see what life would have been like for workers in one of the most well-known factories in Lancaster. It was one way in which Williamson's laid out how they expected their workers to behave. Today's object is a rule board from the Williamson's Linoleum Factory. The rule board is quite roughly made of two pieces of wood secured together, with paper pasted onto the front. It measures 77 centimetres tall and 53 centimetres across. It's rectangular with a curved top, and the wood is dark brown while the paper is off-white and a little yellowed by age. The paper is densely printed with text. There's a tear along the line where the two planks of wood meet, but the rules that it displays are still visible. At the top is printed rules to be obeyed by all persons employed in this factory. Beneath are 13 rules, including ones on giving a month's notice before leaving employment, how wages will be paid, minus any fines or abatements that they have incurred for breaking the rules, and how often they should wash while working. It also states that anyone going into any room other than the one in which they work, reading, sewing, quarrelling, using improper language, or assembling together while the factory is running, will be fined sixpence. That's about £15 in today's money. At the bottom of the list there is a date that these rules were printed. January 1st, 1875. We spoke to Inga Jackson, a sociology student at Lancaster University, who told us a bit more about the rules and the factory that they came from. It is interesting because it gives us an insight into the working life of people in the Williamson's factory. It also suggests the kind of expectations and values the company held. The rules cover the repercussions for different kinds of behaviour, damage or absenteeism. One of the most interesting rules to me is number three, which says that any person employed in this mill who may refuse to work or who shall be absent from his or her employment without permission more than a quarter of a day or who may leave his or her employment without having given the notice required by these rules shall forfeit all claims to wages. The company clearly expected dedication and commitment from all their workers. For workers, their priority had to be their company, because missing work was at the expense of the workers' wages, something which most workers couldn't afford. The employers also had the power to discharge their workers. Rule 1 concludes with the statement that the employers reserved to themselves the option of discharging any person employed in this mill for any neglect. Ultimately, the employers could decide what neglect means and who was not good enough. The power of the employers to make decisions about workers' wages created precariousness and instability in the workers' lives. The companies expected high quality of work and consistency from their workers. Rule 11 says that any weaver allowing a pin, needle or any other hard substances to be in any piece of cloth should be subjected to a fine of five shillings. This rules board provides a starting point for thinking about the factory system, to ask questions about both the experiences and conditions the workers were subjected to and the power and values of the employers. The Williamsons and Sons Company was set up by James Williamson Sr., they manufactured coated fabrics and over time expanded to other types of material, becoming especially known for their linoleum production. James Williamson moved from Keswick, where he grew up, to Lancaster in 1827 at the age of 14. He apprenticed for seven years under Richard Hutton to learn the skills of painting and decorating. 
After finishing, Williamson travelled to London for a few years, learning about the production of oilcloth, a waterproof material which was still being developed at the time. In 1837, Williamson became a partner in a pre-existing business in Lancaster and took control of managing the painting company. The partnership was for 10 years and after it ended, Williamson established his own company as a painter and gilder in Lancaster. In 1879, when Williamson Sr. died, his son James Williamson Jr. took control of the company, who was later given the title Lord Ashton. Over the following years, the company grew and by 1884 it became very well established in making coated fabrics. A series of business moves like shipping cork directly from Spain and Portugal and extending rail links to Hesham allowed the company to expand. By 1887, the company had begun producing cork linoleum, manufactured by coating cotton cloth in a resin-like oil substance. Linoleum was quite cheap to produce and buy, which made it useful for covering kitchen floors, for instance. The company's growth and development made the Williamsons one of the largest employers in Lancaster. The company's workforce had grown approximately from 800 workers in 1871 to 2,000 in 1879 and to 4,000 workers by 1911. They employed approximately a quarter of Lancaster's workforce. The Williamsons had a vast economic, social and political influence within Lancaster that cannot be understated. Lord Ashton became very politically active, with his wealth coming hand in hand with a large amount of power. But Williamsons were not the only oilcloth producer in Lancaster. They soon had a very formidable and long-lasting rival. They actually had a really significant rival in Lancaster, and they were called the Story Brothers, set up by William Story, who had also been an apprentice under Richard Hutton, but it was some time later than James Williamson. When James Williamson had returned from London, William worked for his company for a few years, and soon after began his own company, working in partnership with John Doswell and John Simpson for a time. Then in 1851, he officially began his company with his younger brother Thomas, calling it the Story Brothers of Lancaster. The stories were known for having slightly different values and priorities than the Williamsons. They particularly emphasised the importance of education, with the Story Institute being one of their most recognisable contributions to Lancaster. The Story Institute was one of Thomas's projects and was built in 1887 to offer educational opportunities to a range of people. The stories took on a mill on Penny Street, known as the White Cross Mill, and then later a mill in Moor Lane. The Williamsons were instead based by the river with the Loon Mills factory. Most of the mills in Lancaster were owned by either the Williamsons or Stories. Despite being similar, the two companies were seen as having very different characters and aims within the Lancaster community. They were not only business rivals, but also had political differences in the mayoral and other elections. The stories have often been seen and understood as a family business. One worker for the stories described that before the 1930s, the private family business created a very happy atmosphere. The brothers building the Story Institute in Lancaster and promoting education was also something that workers were very proud of. One worker shared a sense of pride in an interview which can be seen on the Elizabeth Roberts archive. He said that the stories contributed something worthwhile to Lancaster. They did more than build a monument on the top of the hill yonder to look at. He was referring to Lord Ashton building the Ashton Memorial in Williamson Park, which was more symbolic than useful for his workers. The rivalry between the two companies was not just economic, but a kind of social rivalry of who was the better company, which often came down to a dispute over values or who had better sports teams. The Williamsons were known for being a stricter business, with a harsher line on employee behaviour and an anti-union stance. This involved managing the business through a system of fear and surveillance at times. Many of his workers resented his acts of civil benevolence and called the Ashton Memorial the big monstrosity, because instead of him building the memorial, they could have received an extra few shillings a week. However, both companies, as Alan Ward notes, made very generous contributions to the public facilities, but didn't really provide any welfare provisions for their workers. Because the companies were working in such a similar trade, they had several disputes about prices and wages. Between 1886 and 1898, the two companies were quite bitter rivals. It resulted in both companies agreeing to not advertise their products. However, this new cooperation was on Williamson's terms. However, the companies were not always bitter rivals because at times the companies worked together to have a monopoly over businesses within Lancaster and force out other manufacturing companies. 
The companies particularly worked alongside each other to control the labour market and keep the pay rates lower. By not employing ex-workers from the other company, the companies were able to dominate and enforce control over their workers. Both companies created a system of loyalty and made the workers fear unemployment. What do we know about the lives of the people who worked in these factories? What would it have been like for them? The records we have from workers show there were varied jobs and tasks undertaken in these companies. These jobs were often divided up based on the level of skill workers had, as well as gender, with women originally only working in the mills. This means that the experience of working within these companies could depend a lot upon your job. Looking at interview transcripts from the Elizabeth Roberts archive can give us a better impression of specific workers' experiences. A male worker born in 1902 describes working for the Story Brothers Company for 51 years. When he started in the company in 1918, he was an apprentice repairing broken machinery in the mechanic shop and helping to assemble machines. He was working from 6am till 5.30 in the week and 6am till 12 o'clock on Saturdays. Within the working day, he had a half an hour's break for breakfast and an hour's break for lunchtime. He described that these breaks often involved dancing in the story's canteen. These hours seemed quite typical for working in the story company at that time. Before working at the stories, he had studied skills at the Story Institute, such as woodwork and metalwork. Then once he had left school, he went to the Institute's night school to learn mathematics. He described how the stories provided a stable job and security for him. Because of his skills, he was never out of work. His interview implies he was quite loyal and dedicated and he expressed no strong feelings of ill treatment. While not all workers at the Story Brothers shared this experience of stability and good treatment, there is a general pride for their company and a resentment towards the Williamsons. Reading stories from Williamson's workers and about Lord Ashton's character, there is a very different tone. The general picture suggests working for the Williamsons under Lord Ashton was a tense and unfriendly working environment. Some workers described the fear of their boss but also the feeling of being exploited. A female textile worker born in 1899 worked at the Williamson's company. In an interview, she was asked if she felt well-treated by her employers when she was younger. She responded by saying, They got as much out of you as they could. It was all work. You couldn't go to the toilet like they do now for smokes and be away a long time. You couldn't kick up against anything or you were out. Other workers described similar experience of working for the Williamson's and that ultimately their labour was what made Lord Ashton. Often people started working at an early age when they left school, with some women working in the mill, for instance, at the age of 15. But some workers were committed to one company and worked there for over 30 years. And that was not uncommon. The story's records show that over 369 people completed 25 years of service. However, working for a company with unbroken service could have been quite difficult because in periods of economic slumps, many workers were laid off. In the Elizabeth Roberts archive, some of the people interviewed remember their fathers being out of work for quite prolonged periods. One interviewee recalls their dad struggling to find employment in the 1920s. He had worked for the stories, the Williamsons, and as a handyman. He'd previously worked at the Williamsons in the hanging rooms, which was seen as quite a nasty job, earning a pound and threepence. So having constant and stable employment was not a choice a worker could make, but often depended on the company's decisions. The less skilled workers could be more easily dismissed. And in times of high unemployment, there was always someone who could replace you, which often created a fear amongst workers and a sense they could not kick up any fuss. We asked Inga what would happen if a worker was sick or got injured, and if the employers ever tried to recognise and encourage loyalty that they got from their employees. Before the introduction of national health insurance in 1911, people had to pay for their own sick pay. Each week you would pay some money to a friendly society, and then when you were sick you would get a few shillings back. Often neighbours also provided some support, bringing around gifts of chicken soup, for instance, if someone was ill. 
both St. George's and the Loon Mills owned by Williamson's had their own societies attached to them by 1881. Not all the workers were part of these societies. Members had to contribute three pence a week and then they would have six shilling or seven shilling a week back when they were ill. Lord Ashton increased these payments by one third. However, when National Health Insurance was introduced, Ashton had to pay his employers sick pay and workers no longer paid for it themselves. The stories had a similar setup with a friendly society subscription. One worker described that when he first joined the society, he paid in threepence a week, and when you were ill, you got 15 bob or a pound a week back. This was more than half of his wages for the week. He described that the amount you were paid would go down if you were always ill. Someone called a sick visitor would also come around to check that you were actually sick. But when his dad had influenza during the epidemic, he still received sick pay, despite being off for quite a while. It is also quite interesting that Lord Ashton paid wages to the elderly and sick as long as they made it to the work premise. They were obviously paid lower wages and were either given simple tasks or didn't work. There was a mess room or cookhouse where men who were too old to work would sit while being paid a wage. At this time, there were no pensions paid, so many people needed to work or earn into old age. It was thought that if you'd worked for the company for 10 plus years and something happened, there was this kind of agreement to keep paying a wage. However, this decision of Lord Ashton to pay his elderly or sick workers was part of his bigger business strategy. He was able to offer his workers a job for life and it in effect meant he was paying a pension to his workers. Also, by keeping his workers around and on reduced wages in economic slums, it ensured they did not go to a different company. The system of pay did not disadvantage Ashton, but actually benefited his business and instilled loyalty. Both companies expected loyalty from their workers. It went to the extent that the stories actually rewarded their workers' loyalty. In 1899, the directors of stories started the presentation of engraved silver rose bowls for 50 years of unbroken service. Since it was introduced, there have been 250 of these bowls awarded. 1938 was a significant year because it was the largest number of people presented with the Silver Rose Bowls at one time. It was awarded to 11 work people and there was a photo of them together which we still have. In 1957, the stories also introduced further awards for workers with a brooch for women and a lapel badge for men that said loyal service on it. It was bronze for 15 years, silver for 25 years and gold for 40 years of service. For both companies, they desired to have loyal workers because it ensured the company would always have enough people employed. They didn't want their workers trying to join different companies in Lancaster or kicking up about their working conditions. So having committed workers benefited the company. Workers may have wanted to remain loyal and stick with a certain company, for instance, because they liked the treatment at the stories. But I think we cannot forget that the workers were carrying out labour for a wage which they needed. Both companies exploited this form of dependency, and it was a big reason for how they treated their workers and such low wages. While there are other companies workers could move to, it would be very difficult. There also wasn't much competition outside of Lancaster. It was one of the most dominant labour markets in the area. So for workers, there were not many other options than to stick with a company if you could. To finish, we spoke about what workers might get up to outside of work and how the dominance of Williamson's and stories over working lives in Lancaster for so many years has left an impression on the people of the city, which remains to this day. Many of the workers engaged in activities that were still quite connected to their workplace outside of working hours. For instance, Lord Ashton set up a range of sports clubs around his interests such as cricket, cycling and rugby. These sports clubs competed on local levels and were quite competitive. The cricket club won the local championship in 1912 and the Loon Mills rugby team won the local cup in 1904. The success of the sports clubs was often something workers at the Williamsons were quite proud of. The Williamsons also had their own brass band. Several people interviewed in the Elizabeth Roberts archive describe enjoying going on walks around the local area, sometimes with other work colleagues. One worker describes that in the 1920s, when he had reduced working hours, he brought a bike and cycled to Hest Bank and Morecambe and he joined the tennis club. One female textile worker for the Williamsons describes that when she was younger, she used to go to the dances at the Winter Gardens in Morecambe, and in the evening, she also did a lot of knitting. For many female workers, there were large amounts of domestic labour to be completed outside of working hours. 
One interviewee described that it was practically impossible for women to have children and work for either company because having to start work at 6.30 made childcare very difficult. I think it is really interesting that the impact of the Williamson's and stories lives within the memories of Lancaster. At the time, both these companies were hugely influential, with the oilcloth industry a central part of Lancaster's development in the late 19th and early 20th century. The two companies were some of the largest in Lancaster, and their domination at the time was immense. Their influence has continued, as both companies have built parts of Lancaster that still stand today, like the Ashton Memorial, the Town Hall and the Story Institute. Whilst researching, I found that talking to people from Lancaster, many still have ideas of what the companies were like or how their families felt about them. Many families still know someone's experience, either their parents or their grandparents. This really emphasises that these companies had a large role in the history and the memory of Lancaster, and for many people, this comes with very strong felt experiences. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. There are lots more episodes to listen to, discussing everything from authors to astronomers 